series in Luke, and the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And we're concentrating this last section, uh, this last uh, third of this sermon series from now up until a couple weeks after Easter when we conclude. Uh, we're looking at the saving ministry of Jesus. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so we're concentrating uh, on that aspect of salvation. This morning, we're going to look at Luke 20, uh, beginning in verse 27. In just a couple minutes, if you don't have a Bible, the passage will be on the screen as we look at an assuring answer to an absurd question. Uh, have you ever had somebody ask you a question that really is not a question at all? It's actually uh, a statement. You just need to take a moment and think and kind of read between the lines. Uh, parents get this from time to time with questions uh, that their children may ask them. Uh, I got a question like this one time from one of my kids. Dad, isn't it really actually a relief to know that somebody was in a fender bender, but nobody was hurt? <laughs> isn't that great, Dad? <laughs> That's not really a question. That's a little bit more uh, of a statement. If you're hiring somebody and you're conducting a job interview, you don't want to hear questions like, say, do we get President's Day and Columbus Day off around here? That's not the kind of question you want to hear. That's more of a statement about a person's work ethic. And then a question that I received on Friday that was really no question at all. I was quite offended by the person that asked it, but nonetheless, I'll share with you. This person said to me, sir, do you know why I pulled you over? <laughs> Where's my attorney? Jim Bingley's in here somewhere. I saw you come in, Jim. Where? Thank you. I'll be getting to touch you later on this week. By the way, the answer to that question is not, well, I assumed you were impressed with my driving skills and wanted a few tips in case you got in a high-speed chase. That's not the answer you want to give when somebody asks you that question $200 later. <laughs> Jesus is challenged by a statement in the form of a question in this particular passage. Uh, I've said that it's an absurd question. I think as you hear me read this, you might actually get a little bit lost in the question because uh, there's a long statement that's made leading up to the question. It comes at the very end of the statement. Uh, and then there's a, uh, a bit of a rebuttal, so to speak, that Jesus gives. And I'm going to walk us through that passage again, kind of like we did last week. I'm going to move through the passage uh, fairly quickly for, for my pace, maybe not for your pace, but for mine, because I want to get to the deeper question this morning, which is not for me the answer that Jesus gives but rather it's the reason why the question was asked in the first place. That's really what I want us to, to try to dig in and get to this morning. So hear the word of God as it's found in Luke chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 27. Then came to him, the, somebody came to Jesus, uh, some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for her brother. Uh, they're alluding to a passage in Deuteronomy 25, which is, 25, which is called the Leverite Law, uh, which says that if, if my, brother's, my brother passes away and they have no children, then I'm to marry his wife, bring her into my family to make sure that my brother's name continues, that his posterity is safe for the future. So that's the, the, the law they're alluding to. You could actually read about that in Deuteronomy 25 if you were really bored this afternoon. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven, but left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. 
for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but God of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together for just a moment. Father, I pray this. Let's pray together for just a moment, for just a moment. Father, I pray this morning that as we have worshiped you with our voices, now we will worship you with our minds and with our hearts. Father, I pray that we would be open to what you want to say this morning. Father, I pray that we would uh, ignore the preacher, but listen to your word. Father, my words are inconsequential. Uh, They're simply one other man's opinions, which carry no weight compared to the eternal and perfect and true word of God. So, Lord Jesus, if uh, you are not here to be our teacher, then we are wasting the next 30 minutes. But you promise that you will come and, and open the eyes of our hearts and explain to us your word, and it is that for which we pray. Father, we come from busy weeks. We come from uh, schedules that wear us out and uh, and distract us. Lord, some of us may be thinking back to the past week and issues and experiences we had. Others of us are uh, perhaps fearful or excited even about looking towards some things that will be happening this next week. And all of that tends to crowd out your spoken voice. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would protect us against our busyness, that you'd protect us from our own minds wandering, and that you would open our hearts and minds. Lord Jesus, I confess my sin to you. I ask that it would not stand in the way of what you want to teach your people this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. The long and the short of it is with the Sadducees, which is a different group of guys that that aren't mentioned all that often in the New Testament, is that they were extremely rich They were extremely wealthy. They were extremely influential, and they were extraordinarily pragmatic. They were both religious and political leaders in their day and age. Now, if you know anything about the time in which Jesus lives, you know that the Romans are controlling most of the civilized world, and that included the area of Judea around Jerusalem and and the area that we uh, now call today Palestine. The Romans had a firm death grip on all of Uh, culture, and yet they allowed for local leadership to cooperate them on some type of level. Now, the Pharisees hated the Romans. The the people you hear most about when preachers are talking about religious leaders are the Pharisees. And the Pharisees hated the Romans, and they only cooperated with them as much as they had to to survive, survive, but not the Sadducees. They were wheelers and dealers. They got out there, and they worked with the Romans in order for them to hold on to what limited power the occupying forces would give them. On top of this, although they were very religious people, in other words, when I say that, I mean they tried to be very moral people. They tried to uh, to do the right thing, so to speak. They rejected the notion of the resurrection, as Luke points out in this very first verse. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny there is a resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in life after death. And as, as a result of that, they based their lives around that theology, and we'll see how that's going to play itself out in just a couple minutes. But I would say they're no different than anyone else. I would say that, that you and I, I would say uh, people that go to church, I would say that for people that don't go to church. 
I would say an atheist bases his or her life around their theology. Their theology may be that there's no God, but that is a theology. That is a belief that is held. And that our lives are formed and shaped by this belief. And as a result, the Sadducees find themselves toe-to-toe with one claiming to be the Messiah, and they have a significant disagreement with him. But the disagreement they try to pose as intellectual, actually there's a lot more being spoken in between the lines. So let's look uh, quickly at the scenario. Let's look at how Jesus responds and then the reason why I bring the, the passage up in the first place. Uh, they're arguing against the resurrection, and as I said, they're, they're taking this old law to an absurdity. Uh, an absurdity. Uh, the Leverite law says when my brother dies, I, I take care of his name by making his wife mine, bringing her into my home, caring for her, providing for her, and hopefully providing children that will then bear his name. As I said, you can read about it in Deuteronomy 25. But what happens here is that these fellows, in trying to make a point, take the argument to its absurd conclusion. We have a, a man here who's, uh, who are seven brothers and a wife, and they've all been married to this wife. So at the resurrection, whose wife will they be? Now, first of all, this could never have happened, okay? There's no way in the world that seven brothers in a row are going to marry the same woman. If I'm brother number four, I'm asking some serious questions, okay? <laughs> I'm saying, fellas, I'm sorry. I love God, but it stops here. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to be another statistic. I saw that movie Black Widow where the, where the wife goes and, and murders the, the guy she marries. You know, that just, this just isn't going to happen. So they're, they're posing an absurd question. But what they're saying is our question proves, Jesus, that your teaching on heaven is invalid. Therefore, you're not God. We don't have to listen to you. We can do as we please. I find it fascinating that every question about Jesus always comes down to lordship. It always comes down to the question of what are you going to do with him? Are you going to make him your God, which he claims to be, or are you going to reject him out of hand and therefore be your own God and live as you see fit? I was talking to a guy one time, a buddy of mine, he says, you know, you can't really believe the Bible. You know the Bible isn't true. And my response to him was, kind of caught him off guard. I said, well, what do you care? He said, what? So what do you care if the Bible's true or not? You've already made your decision. You're already living your life. So, so why should you care whether I believe the Bible's true or not? You've already created yourself as God in your own mind. So I'm going to have to think about that. Kind of walked away. We talked about other stuff. And he came back later and he said, you know, I, I see your point. I don't agree with you. I still don't think the Bible's true, but, but I get your point. Everybody has some kind of theology. The Sadducees have a theology. It rejects the resurrection, but it allows them to say to Jesus, we don't have to pay attention to your message. Now, the Sadducees were right on one point. I want to give them credit for where they're right. Jesus did talk about the reality of heaven. Jesus taught very clearly that life goes on forever, that, that the life in the physical body, the 60 or 70 or 80 years, whatever you have in the physical body, is not all there is, that there is an eternal and everlasting existence. Jesus ta- told a lot of stories where he said the kingdom of heaven is light. And he would go on to describe what God's eternal kingdom, uh, he would describe it for those who would listen. He challenged his disciples to store up treasures in heaven where the moth and the rust don't come in and and harm and where uh, your goods are not corrupted. Have these eternal goods stored up in heaven. He told a story about the the poor man, Lazarus, who sat at at the doorstep of the rich man. And every day he tried to eat from the crumbs of his table. I preached on that passage a couple of months ago. And then he talks about Lazarus dying and going to Abraham's bosom, but the rich man being in torment and hell. The Sadducees were right. Jesus firmly believed in the afterlife. He firmly believed in a heaven and a hell. But they were wrong 
and thinking that their question was going to paint Jesus into a theological corner. And Jesus responds to their comment, to their story of these seven brothers and one wife, and he offers them a rejoinder. In verse 34, the first thing he does is he identifies the real attitude behind the question. Jesus says this, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Now, you look at that on the surface, you go, well, that makes sense. You know, in every society that's ever been, there's been marriage in between men and women, and they come together, they procreate and have offspring, and they go on. So what's, you know, Jesus is simply pointing out the obvious. Well, I want to suggest to you that he's using a very subtle term there when he talks about the sons of this age. And what he's saying to them subtly is he's not, he's not disagreeing with the statement about marriage and giving him marriage. He's not saying there's anything wrong with that. Jesus endorses marriage. But what he's saying to these guys and kind of in a, in a backhanded way is you're a little bit short-sighted, fellas. All you're thinking about is this particular age and your, your presupposition is probably in the wrong place. You're not looking at the bigger picture. And in verse 35, he reminds them that dignity and grace go hand in hand. He said that the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to the age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Those who are considered worthy. I want to stop there for just one second because Jesus talks about people who have a dignity in God's eyes. They're part of his everlasting kingdom, and yet he points to the grace in which they stand. Being considered worthy doesn't mean that you've done something to earn it. When you say that someone's considered worthy, you're not talking about that person or their actions or their attitude, but rather you're speaking about the one who is looking at them. And Jesus is referring back to God, and he says, God finds these worthy. Why? Because of the grace that has found us in Christ. We know because of the rest of the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament and the rest of Scripture, for that matter, that God is a God of grace and mercy and that we don't earn our salvation. We can't work for it. But rather, those who are considered worthy are considered worthy because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so Jesus reminds them that dignity and grace go hand in hand, but they go hand in hand forever, not just for this life. He goes on in verse 36 to say, they cannot die anymore. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say they won't die anymore, but he says they cannot die anymore. What's he he talking about there? Well, one of the reasons that there's no marriage in heaven is because one of the the main reasons for marriage is to create offspring, to keep society going, to keep our culture alive. And in heaven, that will no longer be necessary because we don't have folks growing old and dying. They will live forever. And so Jesus says, in a sense, marriage, marriage points to the fact that we're finite. It points to the fact that one day we will die and that we want to have children and offspring to uh, carry on our name. I remember when, uh, when uh, Nathan was, uh, was first born, I remember when Cindy was pregnant and had a bunch of guy friends. Uh, and we were the first ones to have a baby. And uh, I'm going to show that I'm a bit of a sexist here because the pressure was on the guys. You know, are you going to have a are you going to have a male child first? Are you going to carry on your name first? And I remember when Nate was born, I just breathed a huge sigh of relief because I knew that that I could now go abuse guys and I wouldn't be abused by other guys. Uh, I was also very thankful when when Katie came along too because I knew God would use her to keep me very humble. But but one of the reasons that we uh, that we're married is so we can have children. And so that we can continue our name. And Jesus says, you don't need to worry about that in the kingdom to come. They can't die anymore. They'll be sons 
of the resurrection. He goes on to say they'll be like angels. And a lot of people wonder what that means. Does that mean, you know, mean we'll sprout wings in heaven? Does that mean we get to fly around? What exactly is that all about? I think Jesus is simply pointing there to the difference that we will now have in our relationship with God. This morning, you're here by faith. If you're, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you take that on faith. Now, you've studied the Word of God. You've been convinced that it's true. It's not a blind faith. It's not a foolish faith. But as far as I know, as yet, everybody in this room has one thing in common, and that we haven't seen Jesus face to face. We haven't arrived there yet. When Jesus talks about the angels and their relationship with God, he's saying, you know what? They're on a different level than you guys are right now. They're in the presence of God. They're enjoying that relationship with him. They're enjoying that relationship with one another. And one day, the sons of the resurrection, the children of the resurrection, those for whom Christ died, will see him face to face just as the angels do. So I don't think there's anything very mysterious there. But then Jesus in verse 37 and 38 does something interesting. He shows the Sadducees the inconsistency between their creed, what they say they believe, and their confession. Because the Sadducees loved the written word. They loved the Pentateuch. That's what they were all about. The Pentateuch is, if you have a Bible in front of you, the Pentateuch is simply the first five books of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the Pentateuch. And these guys loved the Pentateuch. They didn't believe anything else. And if it wasn't written down, they didn't believe it. And Jesus says, how can you say you believe in the Pentateuch and not believe in the resurrection? Because even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, he's talking about the burning bush in Exodus 3, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not the God of the dead, but the living. Jesus refers back to this interaction where God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he doesn't talk about it in past tense, but he talks about it in the present. Jesus listens to the Sadducees' comment between the question and reads between the lines and says to them, you've completely misunderstood. God has created you for an everlasting relationship with him. So we asked the question this morning, well, why is this verbal skirmish recorded in Luke's gospel. You know, why should we care what Jesus said uh, to the Sadducees? We already believe there's a heaven for most of us in this room. We, we're disciples of Jesus. We were following him. It doesn't seem that that's all that important or all that practical or very much of an application here for our lives. Behind the Sadducees' theology, however, was a priority of self-preservation and control. No everlasting existence means I control my own destiny. I live for the here and now. I can do what I want. The Sadducees masked their unbelief, so to speak, in religion, but only to suit their own purposes. It allowed them to stay in power. It allowed them to enjoy earthly wealth. It allowed them to oppress their neighbors and really to commit treason uh, by going along with the Romans and their rules. By omitting God from the equation, they left themselves in charge. Well, as I said before, I'm not quite as interested in Jesus' rebuttal as I am in the motives behind the Sadducees' question, which leads me to the question I want to ask this morning. How about us? Even as disciples of Jesus, I think we struggle to, to, uh, with the pull of this life and living for only this world. And sometimes we lose sight of heaven. And so I'm going to, last week I put one question on the screen. This week, I'm, maybe I'm feeling better about being back and I'm rolling. I have two questions to put on the screen this morning. So we're going to double our, our effort today. But the first question is this, how do I, in a practical way, how do I deny the resurrection? 
I don't mean, I don't mean literally deny the resurrection. I, I would preach the resurrection every day I got a chance to preach it. I, I always believe intellectually. So I'm not talking about literally, but I'm asking the question in the context of life. Do I ever live in a way that actually denies the resurrection? Denies that I haven't been created for 60 or 70 or 80 years, but rather for an everlasting existence with God? I'm going to give you three challenges out of my own life, and I think that they may be challenges in your life as well. That, that in some way, I think it, it points to places where perhaps I live in a way that denies the resurrection. Uh, the, first word I just, the first word I use for myself is reputation. Have you ever tried to explain to somebody, you know, a close friend who doesn't believe that you're living in light of the resurrection, that you're living under the, under the shadow of eternity? and that you're trying to order your life and make your plans with that in mind. Have you ever tried to explain that to an unbeliever? Try that sometime. Try to, try to explain to them how important it is that they think not just about this world, but that every decision they make as they raise their kids, as they go about their business, if they're in school and the way in which they study, that all of that comes under the lordship of Jesus and that they ought to be thinking about eternity every moment of every day. They'll, they will look at you like you said, hello, I'm from Mars. Take me to your leader. They will think there's a screw loose. They'll think, you know, he's really a nice guy, but, but something just isn't quite right. Sometimes I worry about my reputation, and so maybe I hold back a little bit. I don't offer as honest about my reputation, and so maybe I, don't we really need to know whether Jack Bauer is going to find the traitor in the president's cabinet? I mean, isn't that just really important for all of you that are still hooked on 24 like me? I mean, don't we spend a little bit of time worrying about whether the Cardinals are actually going to find a good left-handed reliever for this coming season? <laughs> Isn't that something that's relatively important to us? I mean, we're St. Louis's. We're the best baseball town in the country. I think all of us have at least a passing interest in the new administration and the new president and all the, the promises he's made and the new course he wants to set. And, and I think whether we're, we, we like his new policies or we have a lot of questions about his new policies, aren't we finding ourselves kind of looking at the news maybe a little bit more the last uh, few weeks than we have? Because we want to know kind of where our culture and our, and our society and our nation is heading. Distractions. Is the economy going to rebound? Are my kids going to be okay? my marriage going to work out? How am I going to survive now that I've gone through an awful divorce? Distractions, just living life. Those things aren't bad things in and of themselves. I'm not saying don't watch 24. I have to TiVo it tomorrow night because Jordan's got a hockey game, but I'll, I'll get around to it. I'm not saying you shouldn't enjoy some of the things that are in this world. You certainly should. God has created the world in a way that allows us to experience pleasure and joy. But at times when we let it go, we get distracted. And we forget about home. And we don't have our eyes fixed there. The third challenge that I would suggest that came to my mind when I thought about the denial of the resurrection in my own life is a lack of spiritual nurture. You know, we work out, we try to eat right, some of us do, get a good education, we can. We study hard while we're in school. We look at the market and try and do the best we can with our finances right now, even in tough times. We, uh, we want to expand our business. By the way, uh, I got to go to the Chamber, Kirkwood Chamber of Commerce dinner Friday night and do the opening prayer. And a lot of you know Joe and Cindy Rozier. They were the uh, business people of the year for the city of Kirkwood. So if you see Joe and Cindy, you want to pat them on the back and congratulate them. Uh, and, and they've done a wonderful job with their business. They're a great role model for a lot of us. Uh, and so we, we spend time doing these things, and all those are good things. You ought to work out. You ought to eat right. 
You ought to take care of yourself. You ought to try and and do the very best you can in the work that God has given you. But we get into this mode of busyness and we are malnourished and we're undereducated spiritually. I want to remind you, I'm going to take you back almost 12 months now, uh, the reveal survey that we filled out about this time last year. And some of the things we said about ourselves in that survey as a congregation, a couple of things we said so that we did not uh, score well at challenging people to spiritual growth. Only 47% of us said that we were satisfied with that area of our lives here at Green Tree. We scored very poor in evangelism. Only 4% of us have been at Green Tree less than a year, which means that there aren't a lot of new people coming into Green Tree that are being invited into a relationship with Jesus. Only 8% of us have given out six or more invitations to Green Tree Community Church in the last year. We're not necessarily talking to our friends, not about Green Tree, but about coming and meeting Jesus. We scored at or just below the mean in key spiritual practices that tend to drive spiritual growth. 21% of us are in daily Bible reading, 20% daily reflection on Scripture, 33% in daily prayer, 40% of us tithing. Two of the biggest barriers to spiritual growth, we said, are low priority and a busy schedule. Friends, I don't bring those findings out to beat you up with them. That, that's not my purpose at all. It's simply to remind us that there are distractions in this world due to busyness that cause us to neglect our own spiritual care. Paul says a man doesn't neglect his own body. He feeds it and takes care of it, provides for it. How much more should we be taking care of our souls? How much more should we be feeding upon God's word? Because if we don't, we will lose sight of the resurrection. We will get so busy that we forget that there is a heaven that is awaiting and we will be less than impactful disciples of Jesus. But I wanna flip the coin on the other side and offer one other observation this morning. And it's this question. What does it look like to live in the reality of the resurrection? Because again, my purpose is not to beat you up and everybody, oh, we're not doing this or we're not doing that, but rather to point to the hope of the resurrection and the promise that Jesus gives here. Jesus states unequivocally, there is an age to come. And through the grace of Christ, through the cross, we will be counted worthy if we put our faith in him. So what does it look like to live in that reality today as you walk out the door, as I go about my work the rest of the week? What does it look like to live in that reality? And I want to give you three observations here, and we'll be done. First and foremost, for any of you here this morning that don't know Jesus as your Savior, that's the first step. You can't can't begin to have the conversation about eternal life without understanding that you don't deserve it, that your sins and your, your, your bad decisions, your bad choices, the things that you've done that have been inappropriate in your life have separated you from God, but that Jesus came to restore that, and Jesus came to give a hope and a new life. We're called to put our faith in him. That's what allows us to be considered worthy of the resurrection. But beyond that, disciples, we must nurture and grow this truth in our lives. We do need to spend time daily in the word of God. We do need to spend time in prayer. We do need to set aside a time, whether it's when you take a long walk, whether you sit down uh, early in the morning with your cup of coffee, or late at night before you lay around the pillow. I I don't know what you're what works best for you. I'm a morning guy. I need to get up and get going in the morning. I pray the best when I walk. I go out and go for an hour long walk. I spend a good amount of that time praying. Uh, So whatever it looks like for you, where are we nurturing and growing the truth of the gospel in our lives, which remind us, you know what, today I'm going to face this and this and this and this. 
And these two are really hard, and I'm really excited about this one, but all of those are in the context of eternity and God's grace and God's mercy. Second, I believe to live in the reality of the resurrection means I'm continually asking God to use me to bring others to him. That I'm praying daily that God would allow me the chance to talk to people about Jesus. And I look for opportunities as I go throughout my day. And friends, you can find them anywhere if you're willing to look. Everyone, you guys probably know I love to play golf, and every once in a while I'll be, you know, out on the golf course, and there'll be two or three of us, and they'll put us with two or three others or, or one other golfer, and it's somebody you don't know. But that's one of the great things about golf is you get to meet new people uh, and enjoy the game together. And, and there's lots of times when I'm out on the golf course with a stranger, and they'll miss hit a shot, and they will just really loud call on the name of the Lord. They'll just, they'll just call out Jesus' name right there on the golf course in an act of worship worshiping the golf gods. And I'll say, do you know him too? He's my boss. I work for him. <laughs> and I, what? <laughs> and it does two things. It gives me the chance to, in compassion and grace and mercy, just introduce somebody to Jesus. And it also gives me an upper hand because I'm so in their head now, they're not going to hit another good shot, hit another good shot the rest of the day. Mercy. Just introduce somebody to Jesus. And it also gives me an upper hand because I'm so in their head now, they're not going to hit another good shot the rest of the day. But are we wired in a way that says, you know what, Lord, I'm, I'm going to pray for the chance and I'm going to look for the chance. I'm going to live in the reality of the resurrection. And today you might bring somebody across my path that doesn't know that reality, that doesn't understand it. And I want to be used by you to at least introduce them to that opportunity. And then I want to give you one other practical practical thought, and it's simply this. Find your kingdom niche. Find out how God's wired you. Find out what you're good at, and go do that. Not everybody does the same thing. I stand up here and preach Sunday in and Sunday out, and I love the opportunity to open the Word of God to you guys and to talk with you guys about my life and our lives together and what it means to follow Jesus. I look forward to Sunday morning uh, more than I do any other day of the week. And yet, uh, I'm married to a person who, if she had to stand up here and talk to you, would absolutely have a heart attack and shrivel up and die. But she goes to Kirkwood High School five days a week. And she works with at-risk students. She works with city kids. She works with the poorest of the poor. And the hardest people in the world (laughs) sometimes to work with are those high school students. And she loves it. And I love to come home and hear her stories about how she had an opportunity to talk to a kid about Jesus. She's found her kingdom niche. Uh, we got a couple of guys, Joe and Josh here at Green Tree, who are starting a Bible study for fourth and fifth grade boys. I can't think of a worse thing, a way to spend my time. Fourth and fifth grade boys, they smell bad. They, they don't understand social uh, do's and don'ts at that point in their life. You know, their, their biggest thrill is to see how far the spit can go down while they suck it back up. I mean, these guys, why would you want to be around them? They're, they're not, and if you're a fourth or fifth grade boy, I'm sorry. There, there are people in this church that love you. I just don't happen to be one of them. <laughs> okay, we're going to use the tape for the next sermon, not this one for the, to put online. Um, but these guys, that, that's their niche. That's what they want to do. Drew Smith's one of our elders. I, I, every time I talk to Drew on the phone, I say, are you in the continental United States? Where are you? He's in Cambodia. He's in South America. He's in Mexico. He's in Africa. He's everywhere because he's figured out a way to take his faith and great business principles and pull them together and help start micro businesses all over the world. What's your kingdom niche? The G Crew guys that come here 
on Sunday morning is set up and the guys who stay late and take down, they found their niche, the Sunday school teachers in the classrooms. I know a guy, uh, met him years and years ago, probably met him 26, 27 years ago when I first started in ministry. I've had the opportunity to spend some time with him over the years. A guy named Tony Campolo, who probably some of you have read some of his books or listened to his tapes. And Tony's one of the prophets in the church today. He's the guy that tells us all the stuff we're doing wrong. And he does it with enthusiasm and he does it with excitement. And Tony lives in the reality of the resurrection, I think, every day as well or better than just about anybody I know, although I don't agree with 90% of his theology. I, I really don't. But he's the voice of the prophet. He has this niche. And you maybe have heard Tony tell the story, if you've ever heard him speak, about a time he was out in Hawaii and he was, he was at a conference. And he was speaking to a group of folks and uh, was late into the night. And about, uh, about midnight or one in the morning, he finally got done and he was walking to his hotel. And as he walked to his hotel, he came across a donut shop. And he went to the donut shop about one in the morning. He grabbed a cup of coffee and a donut. And he's talking to the guy who's running the donut shop. And uh, he's been there about a half an hour or so. And the ladies who work the evening... <laughs> And uh, in that part of town started coming in. They were done with their, their clients for the evening and uh, their work. And they kind of came in and, and would sit and would talk and kind of reminisce with each other. And Tony said, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this one of, the, one of the saddest things I've seen in my life uh, as these prostitutes are gathered around these tables talking about their broken lives. And, and as they left, I talked to the, to the donut shop guy a little bit about them. And did he know any of them? And he said, well, uh, the one gal at the end, did you see the one gal? Her name is Gladys and, and it's her birthday tomorrow. And uh, Tony said, really? He said, how about we throw a birthday party? And the guy said, birthday party? What are you talking about? He says, well, if it's her birthday, let's throw a party. I'll go get a cake. I'll put her name on it. You get some blue. So they planned this birthday party. And so about 1 o'clock the next morning, Tony's back in there having a cup of coffee. He's talking to this guy. There's nobody in the donut shop. And all these prostitutes walk in. They look around. They're like, what is going on? And Tony turns and says, Gladys, it's your birthday, isn't it? She's like, yes. Happy birthday. We're throwing you a party. And for the next hour, they said they just celebrated and they laughed and they cut the cake and they enjoyed it. And Gladys walked up to him with tears in her eyes. And she said, I know you know what I do. Why would you throw me a party? Tony said, because I believe in a God who throw a party for a prostitute because he loves you. And he died for you. And he wants to spend eternity with you. That's Tony's niche. That's what Tony brings to the table for the kingdom. But he couldn't bring that if he didn't live in the reality of the resurrection. Friends, this is not about an intellectual debate. This is not about a, a badly worded question that had a point behind it. It asks us the question this morning, are we going to live in the reality of the resurrection today? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this text and for the honesty of the Lord Jesus to confront um, these religious leaders who were trying to make a point by asking a question. Father, I confess to you at times my heart looks very much like their, uh, their question. That I would never say it, but uh, my schedule would show or my attitude would show that I'm really not living in the reality of the resurrection. That in a, in a pragmatic sense, I, I've kind of denied that it's important, that it's going to happen. Father, I think for maybe some of my brothers and sisters in this room, that, that's a challenge in their lives as well. So Lord, I just want to confess that to you this morning, myself and on behalf of my friends here. 
And Lord, I would ask that because I know my friend's hearts as well, and I know that that's not our desire. I know that we want to live in the reality of the resurrection. And so I pray that this word, your spoken word, would move us in that direction. That maybe in some way, this afternoon, tomorrow, this week, the looming shadow of the resurrection on the horizon of history would be something that motivates us to enjoy Jesus a little more deeply, to spend a little bit more time with him, and to find the way that you've created us that would allow us to share that with others. I pray that for us individually, and I pray that for us as a church.